0: Add a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit MichiganLottery.com to add a little play to your day.
2: from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress Takeover.
3: Check us out at GenProgress.org or on Twitter at GenProgress. Hello and welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host Brent J. Cohen. And I am joined by Edward Theogene, my other co-host for today. As COVID nineteen continues to reshape many elements of our lives, we are reminded that one thing that has continued is the threat of gun violence, uh, despite this pandemic. Um, and we continue to see uh, the harm that the criminal legal system inflicts on Black folks in this country, with some really glaring and uh, Just devastating recent examples here. Uh, While heavily armed white protesters have marched on state capitals to protest stay-at-home orders without any police aggression, uh, we have seen several horrific instances in just the past few weeks of racism and racist violence that police have inflicted on Black Americans. And through these events... Uh, Although these events have taken place in different parts of the country and have ended in different ways, they are all part of a a broader system that poses a daily threat to people of color and is in desperate need of, of dramatic change. So to talk with us more about these tragedies and the broader gun violence prevention space, we are thankful to be joined today by Greg Jackson, the National Advocacy Director of the Community Justice Action Fund. Thank you for joining us today, Greg.
1: All right, thanks for having me.
3: Absolutely, and we are we are also joined today by Tia Bell, founder of the Trigger Project. Tia, thanks for joining us.
4: Hello, world. Thank you for having me.
3: Yeah. So before, and we've got you know I, this was going to be a a packed and impactful show to begin with, and that was before the news that came out over the last couple of days. Uh, about George Floyd and, and the incident, in, uh, or, excuse me, the murder in Minnesota um, and some of the other more recent, uh, some of the other recent examples. But before we jump into that part of the show and, and before we get into even a deeper conversation about the GVP space in general, Greg, I'm hoping you can talk to us a little bit about um, the mission of the Community Justice Action Fund and how you came to this work.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, Well, thank you. Um, So the mission of the Community Justice Action Fund is to build power in communities of color uh, that are impacted by gun violence by uplifting those who are survivors and the most impacted to lead the charge. And I got involved uh, because I'm someone who has always been pretty passionate and excited about politics. uh, But unfortunately, in 2013, when I was uh, leaving a family event in Washington, D.C., Um, I was caught in the crossfire of a conflict that I had nothing to do with, uh, but I was caught in the crossfire and shot. And um, at that time, you know, my closest uh, experience with gun violence was uh, watching television and movies and thinking you get shot and you can just get up, shake it off and move on. But that wasn't my reality at all. Um, I spent 21 days in the hospital, um, six months of recovery, just learning how to walk and get back to basic functions of life. Um, and in those six months, I really learned two major things. One was that, you know, there was not uh, a major political effort to address the violence in America at that time in 2013, despite all of the lives that had been lost, despite the mass shootings, despite the violence that happens in communities of color every day. Um, but there was nothing politically being pushed beyond crime control strategy. The second thing I'll never forget is my uh, nurse, she came in the room as I was about to uh, be released and said that every day, uh, young Black men like myself walk through those doors from being shot. And unfortunately, it's almost like a revolving door. You know, they leave conditions that are dangerous and they're impacted or shot. And then they have to go right back into those same communities and nothing is changing. And so throughout my recovery, I was just committed to, to being part of the solution. Um, being brave enough to share my story, but also using my uh, passion for politics and policy, hope to shoot more and figure out what we can do to reduce gun violence in a real meaningful way um, and not just use it like a political football, unfortunately. So that's how I got involved.
2: Great, thank you for sharing your story, Greg. Um, And Tia, what is the Trigger Project? Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what you've been doing and why you decided to find this organization?
4: Absolutely. Um, First, I was the founder of Four Youth LLC, which started in Washington, D.C., my hometown, four years ago, ironically. Um, That four symbolizes my Uncle Doug's birthday. He was shot and killed when I was 17 years old. Um, At the time, I was in the peak of my career, my basketball career, as a two-time Gatorade Player of the Year and All-American. I was the first in my family, finishing high school and going to college, and my 21-year-old Uncle who was like a brother and father and coach <laughs> um, was, and was killed and he was also my biggest financial supporter. so um, four has sort of been a part of me and my heartbeat to continue his legacy in, in gun violence and youth development um, which leads me to trigger project uh, at as a women's basketball player at NC State, I endured three. Uh, reconstructive knee surgeries and being the person to make it out of the neighborhood and with the ball um, and be able to come back on Christmas break you know uh, we never had spring break but whatever weekend I had to come back and just showcase my growth and accomplishments had ended and my identity had changed forever so um, then I found the love of my life, uh, my daughter's father, but I also found, which I now believe is my true calling, and intentionally ending gun violence. So those surgeries led me to getting my master's in youth development. And while getting my master's at NC State, I learned about risk factors that are linked to not only violence, but just toxic and traumatic stress. Um, and with that being said, The TRIGGER Project, um, the word TRIGGER stands for True Reasons, I Grabbed the Gun Evolved from Risk. So True Reasons, I Grabbed the Gun Evolved from Risk, um, Risk Factors. And those risks include things like having a history of violent victimization, um, having attention deficits or impulse learning disorders, obviously coming from low-performing schools like D.C. public schools having high emotional distress, antisocial beliefs, low parental involvement and supervision, disorganized neighborhoods, all these things um, that I identify with that was in this textbook. I look around as the only black woman in my class and nobody is impacted by this page like I am. Um, and so that's sort of where the trigger project was planted. And now, Years later, I meet an amazing and incredible someone like Greg and uh, uh, an array of gun violence prevention uh, organization directors and founders and um, advocates. And I just am, you know, born with this idea to like get, be a bridge between my streets, my community, and my friends who people identify as the crime. Um, I'm sorry, the criminal, Uh, just this morning, the police chief of D.C. referred to people doing um, the shooting as career criminals, and um, I was just thinking, what about them being traumatic endures, you know? So I want to bring a different context to gun violence prevention. Um, First, that's actually focusing on the problem, which I normally don't do. I'm extremely solution-oriented, but I realize that my young people are not uh, future oriented and that's through my mastery and just being a youth advocate um, they, they care about the now and right now they are the ones that's going to prevent the shootings from occurring and killing a 71 year old or killing a set of cousins or shooting Greg or shooting my mom or killing my stepdad or killing my friends they are the ones that stop that violence um, that act from occurring, that impulse from occurring Um, And that's with compassion. So the trigger project is aimed towards changing the norm of gun violence. And that's, again, raising awareness of those risk factors that we have to, we're sort of just born into um, in our natural human uh, right or lack thereof. um, And then changing the narrative, and that's in the social context, um, because there's also societal risk factors that go into um, us pulling the trigger and that involves and around social rejection and lack of, um, you know, positive social activities, uh, the lack of funding to promote these programs, uh, and then low commitment to schooling and, and failure. And mm-hmm. I just want to add one more thing. I had a young lady on Twitter today that I woke up to from Anacostia High School. Shout out to Taylor. I don't know your last name yet, but we're going to work together. Um, She said that her community lacks power. So how can a young person grow up and feel powerful and know their voice when it's, one, they're killed on TV, literally, or on camera. Um, And then, two, we get, you know, amped up uh, and aroused when these things happen. And then Memorial Day weekend ends and we forget. Um, So how are they supposed to feel hopeful or helpful um, when no one's really taking ownership of their future and accountability of them pulling the trigger, because they're under 26 years old, under 35 years old, who's doing most of the kills. Right. And they need to know why themselves. And then I want to also teach people who may call that those actions senseless or cowardly. I want to teach them through compassion that, hey, you can identify with some of these things, too. If you yep. had 28 out of 31 risk factors you were exposed to, then what, how, you might, you know, the gun might find you as well. Right,
3: right. Wow, Tia Greg, thank you for opening this conversation with such impactful and powerful testimony, and for sharing your stories with us. When we come back after this break, we're gonna we're gonna talk a bit more about what those solutions look like and uh, deep d- dive even deeper into this conversation. We'll be right back.
4: Thank you
1: life, liberty and the pursuit of truth The Leslie Marshall Show
4: mother, there's too many of you cry Brother 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 there's far too many of you die.
2: Hello and welcome back to the generation mm-hmm. progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Um, I'm your co-host, with Theogene.
3: And I'm Brent J. Cohen.
2: Welcome to our show. Today we are talking about police brutality, gun violence prevention, and COVID-19. Um, we are also joined to have this important conversation by Greg Jackson, National Advocacy Director at Commun- Community Justice Action Fund, and Tia Bell, founder of the Trigger Project. Um, so let's get back into this really important conversation. And to start off, uh, Greg. While stay-at-home orders and school closures have resulted in decline in some types of gun violence, are there other types of gun violence that are continuing or even more prevalent during this period?
1: Yeah, um, so we're seeing, you know, I think it's still a little early to see a lot of raw statistics around gun violence, but we are definitely seeing uh, a consistent, if not an uptick in gun violence in communities that are historically impacted by gun violence. Um, just yesterday, you know, in Southeast DC on my street, um, someone was shot and killed. And we're seeing every day incidents of gun violence continuing to rage forward. Uh, in Chicago, they had, I think, the bloodiest Memorial Day weekend of the last 10 years um, during the stay-at-home order in Illinois. And the, similarly in Baltimore and Miami and a lot of other cities that are traditionally impacted by gun violence, we're seeing a pretty consistent spike. Um, upwards in gun violence. And a lot of that is because, you know, the gun violence is its own public health crisis that we have to acknowledge. And a lot of the uh, assumptions we make with this pandemic is that home is a safe place, but unfortunately everybody's home isn't safe. And a lot of folks in communities that are highly impacted by gun violence, the safe spaces are those community centers. They are those violence intervention programs. A safe space may be school, you know, and not necessarily the neighborhoods that they're in every day. And now we're looking at um, months of folks who are sheltered in place in communities that aren't safe, that the government has not invested in, um, communities that have been overlooked and underserved. Um, And what we are seeing concentrated poverty, concentrated uh, trauma, um, and unfortunately, uh, mishandling of conflict, interpersonal conflict that leads to more gun violence.
3: And so, Greg, uh Hearing, hearing all of that, and you're, you know, you're absolutely right. I think there's, there's this assumption or there's this narrative that that home is where you're safe, and um, and yet some of the organizations, oftentimes underfunded organizations out there, are the places that are that are truly where folks are feel safe and and comfortable. And so, can you talk to us a little bit about the the pieces essential campaign and and what the work that you're doing there to sort of address. Um the the current threat of gun violence during COVID 19?
1: Yes. Um so in a lot of the communities that are historically impacted by gun violence, the the backbone of those communities are community-based organizations. Um a lot of times when the government's not there, uh when big corporations aren't there, it's those community-based organizations that are there for the people who are hurting the most uh, and mostly of support. And so with the pieces Essential campaign, um, we're really trying to uplift those organizations that are doing community-based violence intervention or violence prevention efforts. And that, that can look differently. That can be a team of folks who are doing street outreach and interrupting conflict. That can be an organization that's doing mentoring to at-risk youth like the Trigger Project and for youth that Tia spoke about. Um, and there's also organizations that are on the ground every day providing services for communities um, that are hurting the most. And so what we're seeing during this crisis is that those same groups are now doing double duty. Not only are they trying to prevent violence, they are the credible messengers that are reminding people to social distance, that are showing people where they can go for, uh, for resources when they, don't, when they aren't able to go to school or go to work, um, reminding people what are the, the steps they need to take to protect themselves health-wise. That's not a online advertisement that's not a police officer that's not a website that is those violence intervention and prevention programs in the community that are pushing that message and so the Peace of essential campaign is an effort to do two things one to encourage people to donate to those organizations and help uplift them in these times um, knowing that they're doing so much more work to help these communities um, and then two to advocate and to make sure that uh, government programs and public services don't overlook these efforts as part of their emergency funding. Fortunately, in uh, Chicago, the mayor agreed to $7.5 million in emergency funding specifically for these type of programs. In California, they agreed to $9 million. Uh, In Virginia, they agreed to $2.6 million to help these programs. But then in states like Maryland, uh, the governor vetoed $3 million for these programs. And so our effort is really to uh, make sure that we're putting pressure on our elected officials to protect funding that is critical to keep these communities afloat and help those organizations continue to be operational in the time when they need it most.
3: That's amazing, amazingly important work. And when we come back after this break, we're going to dig in even more here on the Generation Progress Takeover.
2: Welcome back the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Um, today we are digging deep into boli- police brutality, gun violence prevention, um, and COVID-19. To help us with this conversation, um, we are joined by Greg Jackson, the National Advocacy Director at Community Justice Action Fund, and Tia Bell, founder of the Trigger Project. Um, and I'm your co-host, Edwith Theogene, joined by Brent J. Cohen, our other co-host. Um, so We have seen several instances of highly publicized horrific police brutality over the last few weeks, including the murder of George Floyd yesterday in Minneapolis. We know that these events can be extremely traumatic for people to discuss and grateful that um, both of you are joining us and willing to speak to us about them today. Tia, can you talk to us a little bit about the intersection between police brutality and gun violence and what needs to be done to prevent this police violence from occurring?
4: I think what needs to be done is, is actually happening as we speak. I mean, people are protesting um, like we mentioned earlier in uh, the brief. They um, have been fired, not arrested yet. Like, we're seeing action, I believe, quicker and let me just Um, say transparently that I am overly optimistic. Um, My life and pain has um, led me to true resilience and always seeing the brighter side of things because I know how bad they can be. Um, So when you talk about the intersection, I just believe that um, it's all a form of violence. We're all a product of our upbringing and and what we've been exposed to, our experiences, our relationships. And if we all start to see each other as people, we'll all start to be, truly realize that we all have trigger fingers. We all are potential shooters, as I've mentioned. Um, we all have the possibility of acting with violence. Um, as Greg mentioned earlier, that interpersonal conflict uh is deep, but also the intrapersonal, what's internal, is deeper. Um, and I'm very scared to say this, but um, I'm just going to speak my truth uh, this afternoon because Greg brings it out of me. <laughs> um, I believe that the people speaking to the cop who were even recording had heightened the emotions of the situation. And being someone who roots all of my program approaches in social-emotional learning, I wish that there was a greater recognition that that cop was in the state that he was in, and speaking to him was only provoking him, and um, I think that is just a platform and an example to show that we all need to be aware of self and socially aware, and we've lost that connection and things like gun violence and the coronavirus uh, are are showing that and exposing that and heightening that. So um, I don't wanna overshadow um, Mr. Flint's life, um, his heartbeat, what he meant to people, um, but I do, Want to use it as um and his legacy as as a learning opportunity, just to say like we we everyone is human, and we need to see each other for who we are and meet each other where we are. And I think with the growth we've made um in the last four years because of Black Lives Matter and Gen progress, um, we can continue to make that uh, you know with with adding that connection to it. So rest in peace, George Floyd. I didn't get to say that. Um, may your transition be easy and your family be peaceful.
3: Thanks, Tia. There's um, so much there, and I think one of the one of the issues that I struggle with, frankly, um, is as much as it is about um, interpersonal and 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 social emotional. And I think that's absolutely um, an insightful point. There's also a systemic. There's also a systemic um, problem that we face with policing in this country um, where you can have an officer um, kneeling on an individual's neck like that as he gasps for breath and having three others stand around and not intervene. And, you know, I I wish we could talk about this as a few bad apples, but it seems to be a so much more than that, because it's something that continues to to come up and um, you know we were talking earlier on staff about just how um, exhausting it is um, to sort of um, continuously have incidents like this go viral um and not, not and it's not the it's not the fact that they go viral that's exhausting it's the fact that they're happening that goes that that's so exhausting, particularly when you juxtapose the treatment of of black folks in this country or black protesters in this country with the treatment of the um, armed, heavily armed, I'll say, white protesters who stormed state capitals just the other day. Um, and the fact that this isn't fair in, in sort of even policing, but the law is being applied in very different ways. Um, and so really thinking through as much as this, this racism is interpersonal or conflict is interpersonal, also making sure that we are identifying and addressing systemic violence and structural violence and structural racism where it exists as well. And I think that that duality is is um, you know certainly complicated and difficult, but but important um, as we as we think through it. And and it's not just police, right? Like that's one component of it. But we've also seen over the last few days the video in New York City that came out. Uh, where the white woman called police and and was really explicit and intentional about saying on the phone, there's an African-American man threatening my life, um, even though the video clearly doesn't show that. Um, but she was very intentional about saying, this is what I'm going to do. Or in the case just a couple of weeks or a few weeks ago of the horrific murder of Ahmaud Arbery, um, um in Georgia, where the uh, gentleman was running, jogging through the community and and was uh, stopped by a uh, father and son and neighbor and eventually killed um, mm-hmm. again on video. And actually in that incident, uh, Greg, the Community Justice Action Fund put out an action tool for people to use to write to their governors and demand that, in this case, stand your ground laws, which was a defense that was being put forth by, by father and son, right, uh, as, a, mm-hmm. as a sort of justification For why they stopped and then killed Ahmaud Arbery, uh, sort of hearkening back and and reminiscent of what happened with Trayvon Martin, uh, where stand-your-ground laws were used to get George Zimmerman off. So, Greg, can you just share a little bit about why these stand-your-ground laws are so dangerous and why we need a a systemic response to that type of violence?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, we're in a a scary time, you know, where a man, black, white, or whatever can get murdered while jogging down the street. Um, Or someone can get the police called on them for being a threat while bird watching in a park, you know, or someone can get choked to death while in handcuffs. You know, these are some of the most vulnerable uh, nonviolent situations you can find an individual in. And we're still watching violence, take these lives every day. And it makes it. I mean, it, for me as a Black man, it, it is terrifying because I like to jog every day. I care about my health. I enjoy the park too, you know, um, but this is unfortunately the world that we live in and we have to figure out how to change this. I think the, the big thing though, I always try to remind folks is that change is not always this big, major, you know, hard to reach societal thing. A lot of times it's policies that encourage the sudden of behavior. Instead, of the ground laws, are a very clear example of that. You know, Every state that has implemented stand-your-ground laws has seen a spike in homicides and a spike in justified homicides of unarmed individuals, which are both terrible things. Um, we've also seen that these laws are not being, uh, the justice around these laws and how they're being used is not being done fairly. The discretion is placed, of, that, that that's utilized by judges in our criminal justice system very, very differently depending on the color of your skin. So even if you believe in the law, the way it's being um, applied is is uh, disproportionate um, and oppressive in itself. Um, and frankly, it is giving people a license to kill. You know, a license to threaten someone, and even when you have an opportunity to retreat, even when you have an opportunity to de-escalate, to still push forward and use lethal force. And that is not a, a world that any of us should be living in. Um, additionally, I want to flag that, you know, there are four states in America that still do not have hate crime laws, and Georgia being one of them. And that's a, just a whole nother level of, of um, political and policy-related protections that were given to people who are using hate to harm others. And we have to reverse that. Um, so that's why we're launching this campaign nationwide to put pressure on, uh, on our elected officials to really. Pass laws that save lives, that protect people. I mean, I'm a strong advocate of protecting your family, protecting your home, protecting yourself, but not creating policies that encourage a vigilante approach that is frankly causing lives at a very disproportionate rate um, when people are doing some of the most peaceful things you can imagine, um, but still feeling under siege in America. So if you, hopefully folks can get involved, you can go to our website, to learn more uh www.cjactionfund.org or follow us on twitter at cjactionfund to learn more about how you can take action but this is this is huge and there are some very real things we can do to to change things
3: thanks greg so for for folks out there uh, you said www.cjactionfund.org correct awesome all right so there's very real ways for folks to get involved by going to that site and taking action with the cj action fund we're going to jump off to break, and when we come back, we're going to wrap up our discussion here and talk a bit more about how folks can get involved.
1: Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real
2: talk. Hello, and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Edwith Theogene.
3: And I'm Brent J. Cohen.
2: Um, Today we've been talking about police brutality, gun violence prevention, all of this happening within the context of the current global pandemic of COVID-19. We are joined by Greg Jackson, who is with the Community Justice Action Fund, and Tia Bell, who is with the Trigger Project. I know we've discussed a lot of different ways for people to take action on issues related to gun violence prevention. Um, Is there anything else that people should be doing right now or calling the representatives and asking?
4: Um, The Trigger Project is going to call for hard work um, and healing versus fixing and and, uh, policy right away. Um, And I say that, again, because I just think providing a safe space to talk about it with your child is, is a part of Uh, the change and and building, again, those protective factors that combat those environmental challenges that lead to to either someone wanting to pull the trigger, someone wanting to kill themselves, someone not interjecting or stopping someone thinking about killing someone. Again, just providing that dialogue that's uneasy, especially in the household of of one of my young people that I serve um, in my program who may not have that connection um or or literally may not have the space to carve out in their home or living room or apartment to say we're going to go here and discuss our issues or we're going to go here and discuss what's triggering us today we're going to go here and just identify what we're feeling today in general forget just talking about gun violence um so i say we 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 rally and and we team together to to have more conversations like we're doing with you guys here on the Leslie show. And also just in your home, Um, in your home, because then they know how to, to shape those words and articulate those feelings. And then one day they're writing a better letter that's more impactful to a governor or they're, they're making, um, a testimony at a hearing and it's uh articulate you know it, it we, we need to start shaping emotions and feelings and words around what's happening because it's happening every day in my community but it's also happening at a national level um and yeah. and we can't continue to ignore it yeah. or not yeah, see, gotta, see people who are killing add, each other every day i'm sorry as, as we're not human thing.
2: uh sure greg Thank you. Yeah,
1: Um, I think additionally, a lot of organizations exist at the community level that are working hard to try to address gun violence um, and help communities survive this pandemic that are under resourced. And so in addition to donating, um, you can also advocate to your state senators. Um, Right now, 20 senators um, across America uh, came together to write a letter to advocate for $250 million in emergency funding to help these community-based organizations stay afloat through grants and continue to serve in their neighborhoods. And so that's only 20. You know, we need way more than that. Um, So you can call your senator um, and ask them to either be a supporter, thank them for being a supporter, or if they're already a supporter, have them champion and continue to advocate for this because in these times we need resources um, to help these organizations and help these communities navigate through this really challenging time. And unfortunately, You know, the government, the federal government gives over $3 billion to law enforcement, um, but $0 to these community-based programs at this point. And so if we want to start seeing proactive change and not reactive law enforcement that can lead to some of these traumatic things that we're seeing, we have to invest in it, and we have an opportunity right now.
3: When you talk about investing in alternatives to violence and violence intervention and also alternatives to, to police intervention and really thinking about what the role of violence interrupters are, the role of credible messengers and community-based organizations, and the fact that they need the funding as well is just such, a, I think, an important point that often gets missed. Folks think about it's either police or no response. And in fact, there are other and more effective community-based responses here that do not invoke the criminal legal system and all the all the trauma that comes with that. So we've got just a, a, a another couple of minutes here. Um, Greg, can you tell us very, very quickly what Wear Orange is and, and whether you all are, are involved in that effort?
1: Yes. Um, so on June 5th is National Wear Orange Day, uh, and it is something that started um, from a couple of community-based organizations in Chicago and New York, which really advocated to wear orange on or one day a year to celebrate uh, the importance of, gun, of reducing gun violence, ending gun violence, um, and just reclaiming that color um, that is typically used with hunting and, and other ways. And so that is on June 5th this year. Um, so we encourage folks to wear orange, post on your social media, um, you know, uh, around your family, your friends, especially if you're still sheltering at home, um, to bring awareness around this issue and then also, hopefully, it's a chance to kind of, as you're starting to educate and talk to folks about it, you show them how they can be a part of the solution, whether they're donating to these groups or advocating uh, for some of these programs and solutions that exist out there. Uh, but it's a very big day, very big opportunity for us to really gain awareness around this critical issue. Great.
3: Thanks, Greg. And and there are local yeah. efforts happening, I think, all around the country on Wear Orange Day. And um, T, just very that, quickly. Yeah, please. I was turning to you right now. We got just a uh, uh, just about a minute here.
4: Yeah, pass me the ball, Brent. Um, I <laughs> am <laughs> I am a part of the Wear Orange uh, initiative this year, um, and I'm very excited to bring uh, a virtual bingo, gun violence bingo, that we're going to be playing that Friday night, six p.m. Eastern time, on all social media outlets for the Trigger Project. That's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at uh, The Trigger Project DC. So we're going to be hosting bingo. And then we have gun violence awareness um, initiative prompts that we'll be sharing, discussions that we'll be sharing each day on our social media efforts as well. So please feel free to donate to that initiative uh, precisely or to our youth program and youth activism program. Um, as well. And I really just want to thank you guys for the opportunity and say, follow us at The Trigger Project DC, or visit us on our webpage at www.thetriggerproject.org.
3: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So thetriggerproject.org is where you can find more information about Tia and the work that she is doing, and especially around Wear Orange. And Greg, if you can give us your website one more time.
1: Yes, uh, www.cjactionfund.org. And you can follow us on all social media outlets at CJ Action Fund. Thank you again for having us. This has been great.
3: Absolutely. And the way that you know Greg is an older millennial like me is he still says www before the website address. So thank you, Greg. (laughs) I feel like I'm in community with you. (laughs) so that's a (laughs) that's about all the time we have today want to thank our producer Mark Romaldi, our senior press associate Emily Leach and of course our guests uh, Greg Jackson and Tia Bell for their incredible insight here please make sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at GenProgress and we will talk to you again next week on another remote Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show
0: little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit MichiganLottery.com to add a little play to your day. a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit MichiganLottery.com to add a little play to your day.